The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. My guest today, C.L. Mitchell and John Kaur, joining me to... Uh, give an overview of Genesis chapter 1. And uh, gentlemen, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Dave. Good afternoon. Maybe I should start uh, with you, CL, if you would like to start this discussion off, um, maybe providing an overview of the chapter and then uh, letting us know where you would like to go back to in particular to, to start the conversation. Well, as it pertains to an overview of the chapter, um, all things begin in Genesis. All things begin particularly or with specificity in Genesis chapter number one, uh, it is going to become the bedrock foundation, substratum, if you will, for the entire Bible. And so you're going to run into uh, first here. Uh, Again, I'd like to point out that when you look at this particular text in the uh, Hebrew text, you start off with Bereshith. We'll get into that a little bit later. But if you're reading in the Septuagint, it's Geneseos, the idea is Genesis or first or beginnings. And um, the only thing that you're not going to necessarily have as a beginning here is God, because there is no beginning to the infinite uh, self-existing God. Uh, It will just simply state his existence. It will state him as the primary premier and primary party in the chapter. In fact, the most repetitive term throughout the chapter is Elohim. Uh, It is repeated more than any other term in this entire text. And so uh, uh, he is going to make a brilliant debut here on the pages of scripture. But what we're going to look at is the first concerning all essential things pertinent to the doxological theme, pertinent to the redemptive theme, pertinent, pertinent to the right to rule or the kingdom motif. John, would you like to uh, follow up with that before we return to CL to a specific uh, verse? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that uh, just to, to tag on to what CL said is, you know, in Genesis 1 and even in Genesis 2, we are introduced to uh, God, who God is, but we're not, we're not given any proof for his existence uh, the Bible starts off with in the beginning in God, um, but the rest of what follows kind of gives us a, a picture of what this God is like, and I think it's uh, it's important. It was important for Moses's listeners, as it is for people today, to learn what God is like to understand that we live in a world that's fallen apart. But in the beginning, it wasn't like that. And Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a picture of God's activities within creation. Genesis 1 being the overall general description of creation and his involvement in creation. And Genesis 2, his involvement in creation of man. 
And so we see what God is like uh, in Genesis 1 through his creative processes, through uh, the areas he's working in, how God works, how he creates. Um, and so you have that, but you have, uh, you have as part of the overview of the chapter, you have not only the creative creation of material things, we have the creation of, of, of everything that we see, whether they're plants or animals or people, you have also a progression within this chapter that gives us the fact that God, at the forefront of his mind, is, is, is mankind and the care for mankind. And the way he creates and does his activities uh, highlights how everything that God does is for man's benefit. And so what's interesting here is we have a, a picture of, of the way things were meant to be and the way that God put in order before sin entered the picture here in Genesis 1 and 2. So... Back to you, CL. Um, how would you like to approach chapter one? Um, would, do you want to provide a, an, uh, an overview statement first and then return to a, a particular area? Well, I'd like to look at verses 1 and 2 um, as uh, the foundation aspect. Really, uh, I'd like to take just a moment to investigate chapter 1, verse number 1, and then we'll proceed from there kind of to do a brief overview or synopsis of the chapter <clears throat> in some brevity. Uh, we won't cover it in necessarily a, uh, exegetical depth, but we will do some synopsis of the chapter in order to give the uh, listeners a general idea of what is contained herein. Uh, we can we can begin at verse number one. Um, I, I think it's very interesting. Your first verse says, Bereshith bara Elohim eith hashamayim v'eith ha'aretz. I'll go back and, and translate that. It says to begin with Bereshith, that is in beginning. Uh, it begins with a preposition tagged onto a root word rosh, which is head or first if you will. So what we're discussing is the the preposition can be when, at, or in, or at times with. Uh, really, it's probably better to translate this in or at the beginning and understand this word within its context, although it is the first word. The idea, again, is not the beginning of God, but it is the beginning as it pertains to the heavens and the earth. So that he's arguing for the head things or the first things pertaining to this universe as we understand it. And what he wants to argue is, uh, to begin with is bara Elohim. He wants to argue that at the beginning, at the inception, at its origin, it is God, Elohim, who actually creates. Uh, we'll go further from there. John, why don't you add to that? Well, you know, just uh, just first one, you have, um, and, and I like to look, look at it from a historical perspective, first of all, and ask the question, Why? Why is this here? What is what is Moses trying to accomplish? Because what happens is, what you notice if you read other creation accounts from this time, they often begin with the history of their God, of how the, their God came to be. Well, the Bible doesn't begin that way. It begins with God already in existence and with his activities. And I think what Moses is going to begin to show is, how is this God, the God, he is, uh, the God of Israel, different than any other gods. And he's going to show that God, this God that, that the Israelites will follow and that uh, people today follow is the same God who creates everything. 
who created everything. And this is important because there are some religions who believe there are gods over different areas and different uh, parts of life. But here, right off the bat, um, Moses is saying that this God created everything in existence, brought it all into being, and has a purpose for it as well. Now, the other thing is, in this ver- in this one verse, you have some implications here. If 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 God created everything, therefore, um, God is eternal. He exists before the you have the beginning of time here. You have the beginning of matter here, and the beginning of space. You know, time, space, matter. Uh, things that scientists look at every day have a beginning, and scientists would agree with that as far as going back to the, what they call the Big Bang. But here we have the God of the Bible being the cause of all that and him preexisting that and being over all that. So you have a little bit of a glimpse of what this God is like. He is not bound by time. He's not bound by space, nor is he bound by any things we can we can put on him. So that gives some encouragement uh, to us that there are not limitations on this God just from verse one verse a- absolutely what we have to discuss is we have to discuss very briefly on a theological scale the doctrine of his aseity basically the doctrine of his aseity springing from a <coughs> Latin phrase if you will the Latin negation ah or from or of if you will himself um, isn't this connoted although it is not the word that is used here for God um, isn't this connoted within the very name of God Yehovah which springs from the root Hayah or to, to be. be in other words he is and Ehyeha uh, he will be whom he will be or what he will be in other words um, this text does not lay any claims to attempting to delimit or limit in any way God. He is outside of the parameters, limitations, or measurements of space, time, and matter. He can indeed work with them. He can indeed act within them, but he is certainly not limited by them. I think we should also expand the larger context, gentlemen, because we have to think in this way. As you're looking at this text, as you said, John, we have to think within a, a larger secular historical venue, don't we? Uh, because you're looking at texts such as the Eridu Genesis, the Atrahasis, the Enuma Elish, and you have the various gods, the plethora, if you will, of gods that are presented. And when they are presented, they are really presented as wrestling with the creation. narrative or account. They are not, this is not an easy venture for them. Uh, this is a struggle for them. Uh, this this is this is hardly something that is done by fiat, by word alone. Uh, this is done by violence. Uh, it is done by um, um, uh, controversy. Uh, it is done with great precariousness on every scale. You know, us just to add to that, you also have these other gods having to think before they speak, having to plan ahead. Uh, and in one sense here, you have God speaking things into existence, let there be, and there was. And the massive power uh, and and seemingly lack of struggle for God. God does not struggle to perform anything. It is not a struggle for him to, to tame that which is, uh, to us, untamable, uh, or things that are chaotic in life. Uh, are not chaotic to him, are not uh, a struggle, or uh, he doesn't have to wrestle with it for uh, for him. Uh, speaks volumes of, of his of his power as well. Uh, absolutely, and 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 we should understand that there are. 
texts that precede this in um, in their um, content, if you will, uh, such as John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him, if you will. There are certain texts throughout the text of Scripture uh, that actually precede this in, in chronology. Of course, the angels are created before this, according to Job, and, and uh, shout for joy uh, at the laying of the foundations of the work. So there's a world. So this is specifically speaking to the beginning in that area. But why, again, in a larger context, is this important? Where are the Israelites when they are receiving this? They are coming geographically out of the superpower Egyptian land um, at that particular time. They're coming out of that territory. How long have they been there? Uh, 430 years right. or thereabout. Uh, they've been under slavery. What have they been around as it pertains to deistic influences? Uh, several gods, if you will. And uh, where are they going? They're going to the land of the Amorite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite. Uh, they're going to the land of Canaan, where they have all of these false deities that are there. Uh, so as they're going there, what is intended in this text from Moses' perspective, from God's perspective, and and from their perspective, uh, it is an attempt to describe what is necessary or what must be said, not all that can or could be said. Yeah, and Moses is trying to, in one sense, he is describing, he, he's first of all correcting any false notions of what God is like. And you can talk to people today who have their ideas of what God is like, and oftentimes it's, it's very limited or it's very earthbound, so to speak. And Moses is trying to, as he as he does to the Israelites, correct their ideas because they haven't, as you said correctly, is that been surrounded by the Egyptian ideas of gods. Uh, the Canaanite will have their their ideas of gods. Here he is blowing that out of the water, so to speak, and he is showing that God is is greater than what you had envisioned before. And I think that's important because here. They're going to get. They're going to enter into some real hardship in their lives. They're, they're going to face uh, some struggles as they go into the land of Canaan. They're going to face some giants. They're going to face some walled cities. They're going to face obstacles beyond belief. They're going to need to know that their God is on their side and can handle it. And I think even today, as people look at their life and say, "Can God handle this? Can He handle the next thing? Can He hand, handle when when a, a loved one gets cancer?" You know, can he bring me through this? Can I ask if Moses was alive today, what would he be telling us? That he was, he was obviously, yes, he was providing them with a clear picture of the way in which he had interacted with God. He was providing them with a picture of where they were then and what their role was and what God is to them. What do you think he would be saying to us today? Well, I think the question that you raised, David, is really a hermeneutic question. Um, uh, it raises not simply the question of how do we understand what he was speaking to the original audience with his original authorial intent, but it goes further to say, and what is the application of that to our time or any other time? And I think it, herein lies an important point, that while we see this fixed within geographical or topographical um, 
uh, areas, while we see it fixed within certain cultures, while we see it fixed within certain time constraints, that the goal of uh, the individual doing hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is to, in fact, see um, at the end of the day these time constraints, cultural constraints, and et cetera, stripped from it so that we can see this universal truth. I think what he would say to us is God is creator of heaven and earth. He is an all-powerful God. He is, in fact, not an all-powerful God. He is the all-powerful God. And what he seeks to tell us is that he is good, and he has always, from the inception of mankind and before the inception of mankind, only done what is in our best interest. Thus, God is trustworthy. That's what he's establishing for the people then through that immediate message years ago. And I think that's the universal message that is established for us now. And I'm just one thing, John, I'm going to I'm going to go off track here. But Moses position in life was to steer the people to the promised land. What is our promised land today? That's a, that's, a good, that's a good question. I mean, we have, I mean, our promise, in, in one sense, our, our promised land is found in Christ. Our inheritance in, is in Christ, the blessings we have. The picture of Israel going to the promised land pictures uh, one coming to Jesus and one finding uh, the blessings that are in, that is in Christ. Um, so, um I don't know if that exactly entirely answers. I wanted to say, <laughs> tag on to uh, to the point that CL made before, just if I may, with your question of why or what would Moses say to us. Uh, I would add and agree with what CL, but I think he would say to many of us that your God is too small. Mm, you know, well said. Your God is too small. And I think that's probably one of the main points he has, to, that Israel maybe never got it. Some did. But many didn't get it because, and many times in, in our own lives, we don't get it. We, we seem to f- think that the next trial, tribulation, obstacle comes in and that it's too powerful for our God. And, God, and Moses would say to many of us, God is bigger than that. God is more powerful than that. God is able to handle that. And we learn the lessons from Israel. And Moses would say, look at Israel. Look at the opportunities they had and look how God provided and and allowed them to yes face difficult circumstances but always promise to see them through and so um, and I, I think I was asking that question in realizing the majesty of God in yes. chapter one a- absolutely yes. and, and the author of Hebrews in his sermonic presentation springing from Psalm 110 um, certainly uh, uh, highlights that uh, for us uh, in so much as he argues had Joshua given them that rest then it would not be uh, necessary for them to uh, seek another rest rather that was a temporal depiction of an eternal reality if you will you might say that the land was somewhat analogous or parabolic, if you will. Uh, It was um, this physiological depiction thrown alongside a much larger eternal truth, and that is our soul longs to find its rest in the place where God is, in the presence of God, having consistent fellowship with God. So it always anticipated not just a locative um, uh, 
realization, but a relational realization, a relationship with Christ. So what you saw in types and shadows there you see in its fulfillment in the person of Christ. And finally and ultimately as it pertains to our locative hope, we long to be in heaven with God. But there are times when this term heaven is oft used throughout scripture synonymously with God. For instance, in Luke chapter number 15, um, uh, I've sinned against heaven and against you, says the prodigal son to his father. Uh, It is a reverence to God. Uh, There's a time in the skeletal prayer of the disciples prayer, which we uh, mishandle when we speak of it as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is really in John 17, the high priestly prayer. Uh, But Jesus himself says, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, He understands the transcendency of the Father in heaven. And and so uh, what do we do to lead people to the promised land today? We lead them directly to uh, to the glory of the land, that is the Son of God whom we trust that we will remain with forever as a result of faith. And and in that statement where you talk about uh, who art in heaven, and we see here in chapter 1 that God is creating the heavens and the earth. Is Are we saying that the heavens were always there, that God was always in the heavens. Uh, we, we need not say that the heavens were always there because I don't want to, while you have this term that can be used at times interchangeably um, uh, with God so that it later on becomes a use, euphemism at times for a God or a place for the abode of God. I want to be very careful to say God is what we uh, suggest in theological circles to be omnipresent. That is, um, he occupies all space and time and is also outside of that. So God exists when there is not a here or there, a where or a when, a now or then. God is. And he's not, again, limited to um, spatial location, if you will. So uh, we could say that uh, he is not only in heaven, but he is in the earth. He is beneath the earth. Uh, The Psalter in Psalm 139 highlights this particular truth. Um, If you're looking at the text in Genesis chapter number one, It's rather interesting because what we read and see as very simplistic would have been something of a concern or a conundrum to the people of Israel. Uh, You look at this and it says, Bereshith bara Elohim. Now, here's the concern, because when you get to Deuteronomy 6, 4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, look at the people's faces for a moment, because monotheism is not what they've been around. I mean, you need a God to control the Nile. You need a God to control the sky. You need a God to control the mountains. Uh, You need gods who have territories that they control. What Moses gives to us and offers us is one God. So why does he use the term or the, the name Elohim here? I think that is of particular import. I think they need to know that their God is all-powerful. Not only is he the God of the mountains, not only is he the God of the sea, but he's the God who created it all. Right. And, and, and I think with, this, with the term Elohim, he is describing a, a majesty of God and yet a complexity of God that's on even within this term. This term is, is a plural form in the Hebrew. And yet... It's funny because uh, he's complex, and we see the development of his complexity later on in the doctrine of the Trinity in New Testament. But yet in Genesis, in, in Genesis 1 and also in Deuteronomy, 
the Moses has to hammer home the point that there's only one of them. There's only one God. So he doesn't. It's it's interesting that the doctrine of the uh, later develop into the Trinity uh, is not emphasized here or emphasized in the Old Testament yet because the first thing that he has to teach them is that there's only one God because they came out of Egypt where there's many gods and they're going to go to Canaan where there's many gods. There, all the nations have many many gods. So, so the first point he has to stress is no, there's only one God. That's the point. That's the lesson. One God, one God, one God. He's complex, and he'll explain the complexity later on. But here he is describing that in just that term, uh, Elohim, yes. With all that said, uh, could I ask you, John, to give us a a short overview of chapter one and then possibly hand it over to you, uh, CL, to to also give us an overview? Okay, so what you have here is, of course, you have God creating everything in existence, the heavens and earth, referring to the universe. Uh, you have six days of creation. Now, we don't get into whether the days were 24 hours, whether they were a long period of time. It really doesn't matter because the point of, te- point of the text is that it was God who did it. Um, so you have six days of creation. And what God is doing on those six days of creation, of course, is preparing the world for people to live in it. Okay, um, And he creates um, very methodically and he creates... Um, uh, with the plan in mind, so to speak, um, you have the creation of light, uh, you have the creation of the seas and the skies and whatnot. And what's interesting is that is that for the first three days, the second three days that correspond with them, um, take what God has, t- he has taken the earth that it was formless and void. That's the word. It was tohu vabohu, which means it was a wasteland. It was the raw material, so to speak. It was uninhabitable, and he begins to shape it and make it able to be livable, and then he fills it with life. Uh, He sends light. He sends plants. He has uh, animals and whatnot. And finally, the pinnacle of his creation is the creation of man. Everything is done with man in mind, and he creates man in his own image, um, and he places man in a position uh, of great significance because he sa- he makes of all the other creatures and of all the creation everything else he created it is only mankind that is made in his image there's something that in one sense that's divine about man but yet at the same time man is still made of dust so there's there's this, this tension that's there and man is assigned not only great value, but assign a great responsibility of overseeing and taking care of the earth and, and managing as God's representative on this earth uh, for God. Uh, <clears throat> let me just say, as it pertains to the structure of the, cha- uh, of the chapter, um, think of uh, placing oil within your vehicle. Uh, and uh, think of the funnel that's used to do that. In other words, you have all of this content pouring uh, from the the uh, the uh, container, and it is is funneling down so that it can uh, run into uh, your your engine. Uh, that's the way that this chapter is shaped uh, as it pertains to its content or information. And what I mean by that is simply this. Uh, the goal of this chapter is to speak to us of God, but the goal of this is to particularly set the stage for God's interaction with mankind. Uh, so when you read in Genesis chapter number one, verse number one, you have this all-powerful 
God, this all-powerful God, literally, who is beyond limitation, who can do anything. Um, I'm going to actually take the antithetical position and say, um, uh, number one, I think that the six days of creation are rather important because it's also mentioned in Exodus. It's also uh, mentioned later on throughout Scripture. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to further uh, my statement in saying that because um, um, uh, when you get to Revelation, um, uh, we see a new heaven and a new earth. The former things are passed away. The question is, is God going to take millions of years or something of that nature to deal with creating that particular habitation? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm sure that John and I would say certainly not. That lies within the framework of Elohim, the all-powerful God. But if we go further... We We have to ask, are we placing a weight upon Scripture that it was not intended to carry? And the concept is, I think we are when we ask of it these questions. Certainly, the Bible is going to be 100% correct in its science and in its scientific propagation, but it was not first and foremost meant as a scientific document, as it were. Uh, The people are not this developed at this stage. This is hardly their concern. Uh, What is their concern is morality, is ethics, it's how to live as a society and things of that nature. Who is the one true God? And so this chapter really seeks to establish for us who the one true God is and who mankind or humanity's relationship is to that God. And as it establishes that, here's what we have. We have the phenomenal pulchritude of of a beautiful God, uh, a glorious, powerful God in verse number one. Then we have, as John said, how he um, uh, creates in this violent situation, uh, this heaven and earth, and makes what is uninhabitable, literally that hendieties, these two terms that work together in order to progress the idea of being uninhabitable, he makes this earth, this universe, habitable, if you will. And when he makes this earth habitable, then the next verses really tell us how he made it habitable. But who is he making it habitable for? Here's where I want to park for a moment. Uh, for individuals who will be made tselem vedemuth. Individuals who will be made in the imagio deo or in the image of God. This is what that fanciful language means. Chapter 1 says, here's what God's like. As a result of who God is and what God is like, here's what you're like. And as a result of that, here's your relationship to, here's your responsibility to, and therefore your culpability to God for being created in his image and the high holy order and responsibility that you have to uphold. May I ask then that in chapter one, we are seeing God um, create a platform for us, for human beings to live and to live for him in his image. And I'm not moving forward to the fall, but is it not our flaw that uh, God meant us to live in his image? But unfortunately, as human beings, our flaw is that we like to think that we are God. And therefore, we, we live lives which are contrary to what he was trying to establish in this very chapter. Yeah, you know what's interesting is, and what we'll have to bring up the fall a little bit is, is that 
here God makes man and woman in his image. Uh, they are physically made out of the dust of the ground, but yet they are fashioned and given something about them, a spirit, something about them that, that resembles God. Um, what's interesting is at the fall and in Genesis 3 of the temptation, and part of what the, the tempter does is to try to make Adam and Eve believe that they are not like God. He says to Eve, you know, you know, if you eat this, you'll become like God, uh, knowing good and evil. The, the tragedy is they are already like God in many ways. And, and the, the unfortunate thing is, is that their attempt to become more like God, even though they are made in the image of God, even though of all the creatures they were ever made, they resemble God the most. Here in their attempt to become like God, become less like God. And so that's where we're at now. Yes, we're still made in the image of God. People are still in the image of God. It's, um, they still have the value. But the, what's in the heart of man and the, the tragedy of sin is to attain to something and getting the opposite. Uh, sin and temptation offers something. It promises, but it never delivers. And the promise was to become more like God even though they already were like God and became less like God. That's the subtlety of that. And that the tragedy is, is that, is, is that that's kind of where mankind is uh, apart from the Lord. Uh, could I ask therefore, did, did that arise uh, during the fall that we see in chapter three, where we as human beings in many ways walk away from God as Adam and Eve did, or, or did that really start to happen uh, when Moses took these people out of Egypt and, and, and towards the promised land where we, we saw so much chaos. Um, what period defined that point at which human beings, not individually as in the case of Adam and Eve, but as a whole, as a community that, that we saw there, what, what, what defines that? It, it, it's, it, what's interesting is it, it's... It's definitely before Moses. It's definitely even within the pages of Genesis. Genesis 3, you have the fall. Beginning with Genesis 4, uh, you see this sin that spreads to all mankind to the point that God has to send a flood because the thoughts and intentions of people were on evil continually. So it wasn't just Adam and Eve by themselves. It wasn't just Cain by himself. No, the, the point of the rest of these chapters are everybody's infected with this. What you see in Moses and Israel is just symptomatic of what mankind was already like. And um, is it not, though, the irony that, that it worsens uh, when you have a community, a group of people, rather than just individuals? Oh, <clears throat> I mean, uh, when, when we say it worsens, yes, it, it can certainly worsen. But, but look at it in its horror, Let's see it in its, for all of its filthy uh, debauchery, if you will, in, in, in all of its um, a dark nature. Uh, we no sooner finish with the story concerning Adam and Eve's fall than their first son, the first son, the, the firstborn son is a premeditated murderer who is self-centered, self-concerned, and in fact, not only does he premeditate the murder of his second 
uh, of the second child, if you will, uh, on the planet. But this is what he does. He then tries to see to his own care, saying, but if someone finds me, they may kill me. So he doesn't want culpability. Now, multiply that. You get down to Lamech. Um, if Cain was avenged, surely I'm avenged because a young man wounded me and I killed him, right? And then you multiply that to the point where when you have a larger civilization, the thoughts and inclinations of their hearts are evil continuously. Here's a pause, just a bonus CD really quick. I I know that society would like to say it's the media, it's this and that. Uh, That's not really the concept, is it? The concept is you put a dark evil, wicked heart in the midst of good and will contaminate it every time. The problem is internal. And when we get together, we are not a societal cure for one another. So it's not the answer is more education. That just makes us more intelligent sinners. Uh, the answer is not uh, uh, societal love and camaraderie. Because when we come together, uh, we don't build a safe haven and a bubble against sin and evil. So the reality is, in order to deal with the externalities, we must not avoid the internality of sin. Let me make a a, a statement that I think will help us understand this. True humanity is realized in the light of God's image. When man is in proximity to God, not at distance of God. In other words, we experience the luster of what it really looks like to really be authentically human and to delight in that humanity to the greatest degree, the closer we are to God. But note this, I'll use an interchangeable term now. The further away from God we move, the less human we sense ourselves, thus the less humane we are to others. And I think that's what you see in society at large. Also, here's an interesting statement. The further away from God we are, the less we genuinely express what humanity is and looks like. When I have no, people say, when I have no realization or self-awareness of me, I can certainly not love you. Well, what's wrong with me? I will never really understand me or accentuate what I am to be the further I am away from the individual who designed me and who can repair me in order to make me the sort of me that's not only the individual that's valuable, but the individual that's valuable in the context of societal interaction. Could we, uh, CL, just stay with you? Um, John has provided an overview of chapter one. Would you like to do the same thing for us? Uh, yes. He, in so much as he's provided an overview of chapter number one, I, I shan't rehearse what he said. I'll simply um, um, dovetail on what he said and, and work further with the text. There are so many questions. If I were listening to this, I would say, oh, my goodness, there's so many details that I'd like to know about this chapter. Um, uh, But let me just point a few things out in in this chapter. Um, Just a couple of exegetical nuggets, if you will. When you look at um, um, chapter number one, uh, verse number one, and you have in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's interesting because, <laughs> listen, this is fun. Um, uh, heavens is hashamayim in the Hebrew. Now, uh, it springs from this term mayim, which is water. Um, uh, interestingly enough, 
this water that is in the heavens and this water that is in the earth <coughs> is very not only necessary or essential for a habitable planet for biological life forms, if you will. It's necessary. However, it is the gracious gift of a good God to mankind for their habitation, ladies and gentlemen, within his gift, the earth. Interesting, because when you get to Genesis 6, what does God use to destroy mankind? He uses the water from the Hashemayim, the heavens, and he uses the water that are in the seas and beneath the earth to destroy mankind. Uh, uh, Genesis chapter number one introduces us to a good God, but God puts in place everything that at the same time can bring about our discipline or judgment. What do I want to say? I want to say this. Be very careful when you read Genesis chapter number one because everything that is wonderful for us can at the same time immediately become difficult, dark, indeed hellish, if we do not depend on who is given to us in chapter number one, verse number one, as not only the originator of everything, but the individual who gives us the ability to enjoy everything. Listen very carefully. We do not want to remove God from the formula of enjoyment. It's not me and my house equals delight. It's not me and my money equals delight. It's not me and my husband or my wife equals delight. It's always this, me, God, and whatever else I'm connected with. And if you ever move God out of that formula, whatever joy you have and whatever you've enjoyed or delighted in will immediately become hell on earth for you. You know, just to, just to, just to tack onto that, because that was a very good and profound point. You see, what was interesting in Genesis 1, you see the evidence of the presence of God, whereas before God steps into the picture, things are chaotic and dark and uh, a mess. God steps into the picture and you begin to see light and fruitfulness and life. What's interesting, you contrast that, you know, with Genesis 3, where they decide to say, God, thanks but no thanks, we'll go on our own. What happens after that? Things begin to die. Life becomes difficult. They're out of God's presence, out of fellowship with him. And in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, mankind is given a choice or is given the opportunity to live in fellowship with God and and in dependence on God. And the result, of course, is, is, is peace, harmony, fruitfulness, enjoyment. In Genesis 3, where they say, God, uh, we don't want to live independence. We want to live independently of you. Well, God says, okay, I'll let you go. But the results are death, chaos, mess. And what happens is that, is that many times in people's lives, uh, they, they look at their lives and it's a mess. It's chaotic. It's dark. <coughs> and and there's, God is not in their life. Does this mean that God, that when somebody believes in God, that their life will be full of health, wealth, and prosperity? No. But there is evidence of God's hand being in somebody's life with the, the, with the fruit of what God brings in there. Um, I just think it's interesting, especially with creation. Everything that God touches, he has for a purpose, and it leads to something that's good. Sometimes he leaves things that we don't understand. For example, in Genesis uh, 1, verses 2, the darkness is already there before he creates the light. Darkness is just the opposite of light. But then the question is, why does, after he creates the light in verse, verse 4, why does he leave, why is darkness still there? 
why doesn't he just get rid of darkness altogether? And that's as if to say Moses may be saying here that that as part of life, there's going to be dark times, but God is still in, in control and sovereign over that as well, that those dark times don't uh, destroy or, or uh, inhinge on God's plan and purpose. Can I go back to you, CL? You talked, you, you provided this word enjoyment of human beings. And looking at chapter one, we see the first six days. And they are God working tirelessly to take this formless and void earth and and create something magical and livable for human beings. That enjoyment that you talk to, why is that not in chapter one? Because in chapter one, we finish at day six, and yet we see day seven as the Sabbath, as the time to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Oh, I certainly couldn't say that it's not there. You wouldn't have the word tov. Yeah, there, good. if it were not there, he right. says it's good many times. Uh, uh, he says that it's good. In fact, uh, at the consummation, he says, and it was very good. Uh, so I can't say that we don't have it there. It's it's meotov. Uh, it's it's very good. Um, I think, however, we have to understand this enjoyment because this too is key. Enjoyment from my fallen perspective is not equal to what comprises joy from God's divine, sinless perspective. I think we need to realize that some of the things that we engage in that we call fun is actually not as fun as we would like to think. There is great delight and joy all throughout chapter number one. And in order to delight in that joy, you have to really see this from God's perspective. Um, I I, I have an analogy, a a short parable to ask. Uh, Have you ever, um, in growing up, Gentlemen, as we're sitting here talking, I'm sure many of our listeners can associate with this. Have you ever uh, uh, gotten to that uh, blessed, blissful age where there was a car and you were given keys to be able to use the car? Uh, or, or there was something significant and you were given the ability to then not only see something significant, but use something significant? Well, you know, that's an extraordinary privilege. John was saying earlier, and it really does deal with what you were saying, David. Um, He was saying in chapter number one, you see the evidence of the presence of God. I think a second essential and equivocal argument in chapter number one is not only the evidence of the presence of God, but the privilege of the presence of God as well. Because we must not only deal with his presence, But mankind has been privileged with the presence of God in a way that no other creature, listen, in heaven or in earth has been privileged with. You know, David, you asked about the enjoyment that's that's in Genesis 1. What's interesting, it's found within that seventh day of the Sabbath. And we often think of the Sabbath as a day of rest in the sense of just non-activity here the implication is is that the sabbath was a day of enjoying the fruits of his labor in other words he had worked six days now on the seventh day there is the enjoyment of what he had been working on mankind fellowship with mankind uh with this with adam and eve um 
And the pattern that is established here in, in Genesis 1 and partly part two, uh, Genesis 2 is what Moses is teaching uh, to the Israelites, that we will work six days just like God did. But then that seventh day, you enjoy what you worked on just like God did. Because that seventh day begins this, be, the beginning of the seventh, the seventh day begins this walk that Adam will have with God. And that's the enjoyment that God has. That's, he gets to enjoy Adam and his fellowship, and he gets to enjoy, enjoy us as well. And I, I think I'll close my comments in, in this way, if I may. I think there's another aspect of joy and delight that is found within the framework of the text that we often forget in this, in this world of evil comparison. I want to be very careful with that. In this world of surgery and augments. Let me put it this way. God, as Piper said, is most pleased with us when we are most pleased or find greatest pleasure in him. Uh, What do we mean by that statement? We mean that there is a fullness of joy that we can experience when our pleasure is solely and appropriately centered in God. And in fact, he can be pleased more when our pleasure is adequately and accurately structured as it ought to be. And I think one of the things is, um, uh, and and you can speak to this with me, John, that um, what we have in chapter 1, verses 26 on, is the image of God, which makes man extraordinarily beautiful in a unique way outside of every other creature in the universe. Now, what does that mean? That means this, that it is appropriate for me to delight in the character of God in me. In other words, it is biblical for me to like and love myself, that aspect of me that is in consistency with the character of God. It is appropriate for me to dislike the Genesis 3 aspect, that fallen nature that is antithetical to that character. But what does this mean? Herein lies a beauty that cannot be manipulated by surgery that cannot be harmed because of socioeconomic disposition, that cannot be devalued by one's uh, depreciation on an ethnic scale uh, as a result of other people's estimation of them. It cannot be depreciated because of a lack of academia. Uh, It simply is because God placed that value there. What does that mean? Chapter 1 argues this, interestingly. Not only is God valuable, but God has placed his valuable characteristics within mankind, which argues we are beautiful the more we look like him. What does that mean? Well, that means right now some young lady need not go to the media and compare her figure to another individual. She need rather say, there's an aspect of me that is so uniquely like God that it can't be nipped, tucked, cut, added to, taken away from, and it will be beautiful, not only now, but to the day is done. The same thing for some young man, the same thing for some executive who thinks that his pulchritude lies within his ability to earn, 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 buy, spend. No, sir, ma'am, God says, you're beautiful because of your connection to me and because of how you exhibit me. Therein lies an inherent irrevocable beauty. 
Can you, John, um, <clears throat> just in uh, 90 seconds, two minutes, just give us a, uh, a final review of chapter one, please? You know, Genesis 1, we have uh, been introduced to the God of the Bible, and we have, we have learned so many wonderful things about him, uh, not only his, his, his existence, but his, his power, his love, his care for people. Um, we have learned the value that we have in his eyes and his understanding, and even when there's times when uh, we feel opposite, when we feel worthless, God has attributed great value to each person, uh, no matter who they are, what they look like, what they do. And God's sole desire here in Genesis 1 was and is to create the environment for us to have relationship with him. And though the, the world is fallen and it's not the same as it was in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, God has created an environment in Jesus Christ for us to be able to walk in fellowship with him and begin this journey, just as it begins in Genesis 1, the journey begins, this journey of, of growing in his love, in his grace, and growing to understand how wonderful he is and how precious we are to him. And so this is what we've begun in Genesis 1. Can you tell me, CL, <clears throat> as we chart uh, the books of the Bible, that God is expecting at the end of the day to return to a world that we can enjoy as he had created it in chapter 1? That thrusts us into eschatological questions, end-time questions pertaining to our belief or conviction in a millennial reign, thousand-year reign, etc. I will say this. Despite our convictions about that pro or con, John again says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The former things were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. The concept is... God's goal has always been to not only have fellowship with man, but to dwell with man. And he shall reign forever and ever. And we will be with him to delight in him, looking like him through Christ, so that we will be forever a monumental trophy of his grace, his undeserved goodness expressed toward humanity that says, the God who began as a good God in Genesis is faithful to perform and complete all good things that he has started to the end. Also, allow me, if you don't mind, to uh, give an overview of next week. Uh, we'll pick up in chapter number two, wherein we will see a further extrapolation, exposition, or development, if you will, of the creation narrative. So whereas we began in generality, chapter two will speak in specificity concerning not only humanity, but the first man, first woman, 
the means and methodology whereby they were created will run back to the illusion of Genesis chapter number one to see the particularities of what that looks like and will understand that environment that God placed them in, an environment that had responsibility as well as privilege. And we'll see how they handle the privilege of that with their adherence to the responsibility of obedience to God. C.O. Mitchell, John Corr, thank you very much uh, for beginning uh, Genesis today. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. You can uh, get information on this and any other program in the series at the official website, davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, God bless you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management